Welcome to Last Call, powered by Speakeasy. I'm your host, Jamie and Christian, and today we are joined by Rafael Chilius. Rafael has had an amazing life in basketball, known as an exquisite talent evaluator, but also a keen sense for finding those with high character. He has coached and developed players to all levels, including the NBA. Rafael has worked at University of Washington, Villanova, UConn, and East Carolina. We're pleased to welcome Rafael, the current head coach at South Kent School. Rafael, welcome to Last Call. Thanks for having me, Jamie. I'm doing well, you know, doing the, the normal grinding out and trying to get guys ready to play at the next level. I love it. I love it. Head coach of South Kent back there another time. Just talk to me about coming back to a place where you had so much success before. Well, you know, some people look at when you when you leave college and you go back to the prep school level or high school level, that is taking a step backwards. But at this program, it definitely isn't. Um, like you said, this is my baby, you know, kind of built it starting in 2003 and through that window, 2003, to 2008, uh, we achieved great things here and became a national, uh, level program. And so to have the opportunity to come back and kind of rebuild it and maybe take us to a different level, it's been fun. You know, it's like every job you step back into, they have challenges, but without the challenges, there's no growth. And so I'm, I'm very excited about what we've done in a short time being back. You know, what do you think is kind of some of the secret sauce there for you and attracting great players and, and helping them continue to improve? Well, there's several layers to it, right? Specifically here, um, like most boarding schools, the way they're set up, the, the number one thing we do, we eliminate the distractions that uh, your typical public school uh, student athlete is going to have, like distractions of travel to school, whether you travel five minutes or an hour, that's a distraction. Um, it takes time away from you doing your homework, being in the gym, whatever have you. And then here we take um, nothing against uh, females, but we take uh, girls out of the equation too. Um, we're an all boys school. So we're all singularly focused on our academics, our character and our sports here. So when you have kids who can lock in and not be worried about showing some bravado or whatever it is because uh, girls are around that allows them to really dig in and fun uh, focus on the things that they're here for to get better at. Um, the other part of it is before they get here, I don't know if you know about Cold Stone's ice cream, but Cold Stone's I always like it to that. Cold Stone's have three, three different sizes. They have like it, love it, and got to have it. And the guys for me in our program, historically, the ones who make it and really make it, um, and I'm just talking about the NBA, but I'm talking about the college level or wherever they go to play. They've got to have it, guys. Now, we'll take some guys who love it, who think they love it. And then they get here and they find out, man, uh, if I don't if I'm not a got to have it guy, it's going to be hard for me to be as successful as I am. So we've had some some really good players come through here in terms of talent. But the biggest piece was with our culture is that we have a lot of got to have it guys. And they're going to put the work in to make sure they can get where they want to go. I love that idea of, of got to have it guys and that mixture of love it guys. we got to have it guys. What do you think allows a guy to go from a love it guy to a got to have it guy, you know, being immersed into your culture and how you guys operate? Um, I think one of the things is it's like study hall, right? You know, when you're in college back in the old days when we had study hall in college, everyone was in the same room, same in the library in the same section, wherever that be. And I always said, it's kind of hard for 13 guys to be doing the right thing and you sitting there doing nothing. And it's the same thing here. We bring so many love it, got to have it guys right on the board of the two in. And then the other guys who maybe have never worked to that degree 
see two or three other guys who are always, it's just not about, as a college coach, you know, you get a lot better outside of practice too. It's what you do outside of practice in that time to add pieces to your game. And when they see other um, players who are dedicating that type of time to their bodies, uh, to eating right, to sleeping, to every piece that it takes to be a really good player, it's kind of hard not to do it. And, you know, you don't stick out like a sore thumb, you stick out like a no thumb. Like, <laughs> you're, not, you're not helping us and you're not helping yourself. So I think that's the biggest part of the culture is when you get so many people in who are willing to put the work in, sometimes you become a gotta have a guy because by osmosis, but action osmosis. Like you're getting involved because you don't wanna be sitting in a dorm while everyone else goes and work out and they come back and talk about the workout and they ask you, what were you doing? Yeah. Yeah, that always said that positive peer pressure it, it underappreciated. You know, in great culture, great situations have such positive peer pressure. Like you said, you don't want to be that one guy. Um, so I want to talk a little bit just about through your journey, you know, coming through coaching, coming through high school, you know, talk to me a little bit about, you know, working your way up and, um, you know, just give us a little bit of, a little bit of knowledge from there, starting from, from high school days. Yeah. From high school days, I was a, a pretty good player and, um, got recruited and went on to play division one at Lafayette. Um, but all the way through maybe six or seven years old, every coach I ever played for, uh, said, you're going to be a coach. And oh, wow. yeah, but initially I took that as two different things. Are they being, <laughs> are they being sarcastic? Are they saying, I'm saying too much, that's not right. Or you're not good enough, so you need to go and coach. Um, <laughs> but in all in all seriousness, um, I always felt, you know, my sister said it one time when I was young, and she said, you got to know the game better than you can play the game. And mm-hmm. so I always, always spend a lot of time um, outside of practice just studying basketball and not studying highlights and, you know, Michael Jordan dunking the ball and this person doing that. But really, um, what something that's really intrigued me is watching how championship-level teams are put together at not just basketball, but in every sport. And so um, when I graduated from Lafayette, I, I, I felt like, you know, coaching was the way for me to go, um, try to play a little bit. And then I, I ended up going to the University of Victoria in British Columbia to start graduate school. But one of the reasons I chose it is because they, in Canada at that time, I'm not sure it's still the same. It was a lot like Europe, like you have to have your levels to become a college coach. Mm-hmm. And they had the National Coaching Institute there. So I was able to go and work with a gentleman named Guy Vitri, who was considered a coach of coaches. And he would coach people on coaching theories and all that stuff through um, the, the um, National Coaching Institute. And I also got a chance to work alongside him as an assistant coach. And that really um, helped me get in the game in a way that maybe guys in the U.S. don't get in the game. You know, we get in the game initially because maybe we're a good recruiter or we're a great player, but we haven't had that, you know, you haven't taken physiology. You haven't taken some of these courses that help you understand basketball theory and to really how to incorporate what you know as a player or what you know um, as a recruiter into being a, a real basketball coach. Yeah, you know, what's crazy is I think basketball is one of the, you know, when you look at like soccer in our country, you know, they have they have different levels to graduate to be able to coach and they put such great coaching at the youth level. And I always feel like in basketball, we, we do a really poor job of that. Um, yeah, we, yeah, we do know. a poor job of education, right? We, we expect because someone wants to be a coach and that's great uh, that people want to help out youth. But to me, and I spend a lot of time, you know, my spare time working with local coaches too. I'm not, I'm not John Wooden. But I try to um, give them what I know and what I've learned as a coach from the people who came before me um, because everyone 
I wouldn't say everyone, too many people get caught up early on, especially coaches in, how do I win games? Well, you win games because you teach kids how to play properly, not because you have the best kids or this, that, and the other. And so going back to, uh, to my days at University of Victoria, I really, really um, embraced the fact that I had to be around. And not he just wasn't a master coach. I mean, he won national championships. And the coach he coached under prior to that was a gentleman named Ken Shields, who's the most legendary coach in Canada, won like 10 national championships in a row. And also his wife won eight national championships. So he was a coach of coaches from a coach of coaches. And, and to me, that was a great start uh, for my coaching career. Um, from there, I, I got my first coaching job at West Nottingham Academy in Maryland, um, prep school. And that was a huge honor for me because I actually did a prep school year there myself um, before I went to college. And again, the, the program wasn't what it was when I left. And so I had a chance to build that from scratch and, Right away, we had some some good players who got better. Um, they played at high levels, and then from there, I came came to South Kent, and was here from 2003 to 2008. And then um, I was fortunate enough that Nike created a job um, there for me uh, to come in and utilize my strength as being a, a very good talent evaluator. And so I had the opportunity to evaluate talent not just in the U.S. but internationally through the Jordan Brand uh, Jordan Brand camps, international games. And um, grew a lot in that area. And then I got my first job at University of Washington under Lorenzo Romar, who I happened to know um, for like 20 years before because my sister went to law school at Pepperdine when he was the coach at Pepperdine. When I was here at South Kent the first time, so many college coaches, you know how this happens, these, mm -hmm. sure, would come in and offer me coaching jobs. Right. And um, my response was, um, Offered me a coaching job and I don't have a player on my team that you want. <laughs> Showing me that you that you value me as a coach first. And I'll always, no matter what level I end up at the end of my life, NBA, whatever it is, I'll always consider myself a high school basketball coach, even when I was in college, because I think we focus on teaching and getting kids better. Um, so Lorenzo's opened a statement to me when he asked me to come with him. He goes, hey, you don't have any players I want now. Will you come work for <laughs> I really respected him for that, and that's how I got back, got into the college game. Um, and I was with him at the first stint for three years, and we four years, and we, we, we had it rolling. We won three Pac-10 slash Pac-12 championships um, between either regular season or um, uh, Pac-12 tournament. And then I went from there to Villanova and had an opportunity to work under Jay Wright, then back to Washington with Lorenzo, from there to UConn, and then to East Carolina. And the thing I, I will always uh, be grateful for that I don't think a lot of people have on their coaching resume is that each one of those coaches I worked for at the college level had won the national championship as either assistant coach or a head coach of a college um, program. And I say that to say that I, I gleaned a lot of a lot of what it takes to be a champion from those guys. Yeah, you you work with some of the the very very best, like Lorenzo Romar. I feel like is really underappreciated in our game. You know, now if he was on the East Coast, I think he'd be celebrated different. I think there's definitely a, a East Coast West Coast bias in terms of who we celebrate. Um, talk a little about 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 Coach Romar, who's just you know obviously a gentleman of the game, but an outstanding coach. Um, that's that's really had an amazing career. Just talk a little bit about about Coach Romar, please. Well, the deal with Coach Romar is this: he's an outstanding human being. You know, he's 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 considered to me in my life one of the top one or two people I've ever met as a human being. 
Um, he, to me, was, is always going to be successful where he is because of the connections he makes with his players off the court. He spends an inordinate amount of time with his guys. He recruits like he's an assistant coach. He's he's on the phone every day with his guys, you know. And then when 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 players come to play for him, you know, we may practice and, you know, I'll leave the practice court and go to my office and watch film for an hour or two. And if I walked off the court and he was talking to a player and the player wanted to talk to him, sometimes I come back down. Often, oftentimes I come back down and pack my stuff up ready to go home. He's still standing there talking to that kid um, because the kids just want to talk. And it may not be anything serious. He shoots, shoots the breeze. He's a, he's a person who really believes in mentoring and pouring into the player first. And if you have those kind of connections, they're going to do whatever you ask them to do on the court. And from a uh, playing coaching perspective, he's just one of the best managers of egos I've ever seen. Mm. Um, as you know, we had some really, really talented, dynamic uh, Washington teams with NBA-level players throughout the rosters, and he was able to figure out what made each person a tick and at the same time figure out how to make everyone click. That doesn't always happen. Um, so he was tremendous at that. And I think because he was a player, he was a self-made player, he wasn't recruited as a top three or 400 guy coming out of high school, and he made himself into an NBA player. Um, you know, let's talk about those Washington teams a little bit because um, those are some exciting teams. Um, you know, I think we played you guys. I was a head coach at Mount St. Mary's, your second stint out there maybe, um, and with Marquise Chris and those guys. Um, and I, I got firsthand knowledge of how talented that team was. Um, just talk about, you know, I feel like Washington is such a unique place and Seattle has such great basketball, um, that, you know, when, when, when Washington's really rolling, what people don't realize too, probably Raphael is that, you know, Gonzaga really got rolling because of guys from Washington transferring to Gonzaga. Yeah, early on. Really, you know, Washington had so many good players that, guys like Dan Dickow would leave there and go to Gonzaga. And that kind of really helped Gonzaga get going there in the transfer game a little bit before, but just talk about, you know, Washington, you know, Seattle in particular high school basketball there and while Washington's done a great job being able to keep those guys at home. Yeah. What, what people don't understand nationally is that um, Seattle's a basketball town. I mean, it is really a basketball town. If you, if you do your research and go back, um, I mean, you go all the way back to like Marvin Williams, Jamal Crawford, you name, I can go on and on and on the NBA level talent that comes out of Seattle. And the 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 biggest thing I say about the Seattle basketball culture is that they have a culture of giving back. Um, when the guys make it, Jamal Crawford's going to come play it at your high school gym if the high school kids want to play. Isaiah Thomas is going to grab you and take you under your wing and you're going to play. If you have any sort of love for basketball, and I didn't say talent, love for basketball, all the, the real basketball guys, they take it as their responsibility to help the kids, uh, Brandon Roy, all the kids in the community become better basketball players. And they love basketball in, in Seattle. Um, one of the other things about the University of Washington is, is, is you said it, um, Lorenzo specifically had always done a great job of keeping the best at home for the most part who wanted to stay home. And Seattle is the Seattle guys, the Seattle guys, Tacoma guys. Um, I'm telling you, when I was there, the NBA players, the minute their season ends, they can win. The, they can win the NBA Finals. You wake up the next morning, they're back in Seattle. Um, there's something about Seattle that they love love to get back. Um, and the teams, the, the culture we created there was, you know, especially before they changed the defensive rules, the way that Lorenzo's teams would play were really really exciting because we always said it. We we ran offense, but if you don't like to run, run offense, play really good defense. 
So we're in transition. And so we played up and down and we, then we recruited guys that and, and a lot of, um, of, of the way I recruit now building my teams is that I just don't recruit based upon, we have to have all the best talent. We have to have all the best talent that fits each other, you know, but we have certain metrics in terms of, at, you know, at, at, at Washington, we always had guys, if you were six, five, you had like six, nine, six, 10, six, 11 wingspan, big hands, Isaiah Thomas, you know, barely, you know, six foot five, 11, but he has six foot three and a half wingspan, big hands. Um, you know, and our whole belief was it's not necessarily how high you can jump, it's how high you can reach when you jump, you know, mm-hmm. get in the passing lanes and get steals and deflections. So we played an exciting brand of basketball. And if you shared the ball and you guarded, um, Lorenzo's the guy to play for. Talk a little bit about, you know, having that opportunity with Nike, um, what kind of perspective it gave you on a global sense um, and what that kind of did for your career. Well, what it did, um, before I left to go here, I, I was one of the few, it was myself and I believe a coach at, at Massanet Military Academy at the time. A lot of people weren't bringing um, a lot of international players over at the high school and prep school at that point. And the NBA Without Borders had a program then where they bought, you know, these kids started to come through NBA Without Borders. They were flying through the camps to give opportunities. And I was, out myself and that, that gentleman were the first two people to ever have kids um, come from, different countries through that program um and so once that started you know the game became and i was in canada before but the game became more global to me um and even from here as a coach i began traveling to africa and serbia and other places watching kids and so when i went to nike and had that same opportunity i really realized that um we're not all that we think we are over here that we that we we may have created basketball but there's some people around the world who really understand the game and teaching the game. And I got to go into gyms, I mean, in far reaching places and watch some of the best coaches in the world who we'll never hear of teach the game of basketball. And and that being said, then I had this opportunity. I saw Jonas Vasilunas when he was 16 and he was just a wiry, gangly spaghetti noodle, but you could see it. You know, I saw it in his canter when he was young. I can go on and on and on. And so it, it gave me the opportunity to really understand um, how global the game had become and where it was going. And if we didn't start to, to keep up on our end in terms of getting better, getting culture better, getting better players to better understand the game better, that we were heading down the road that's going to be dangerous. Because I, I, I saw guys over there, I was like, man, if this kid or this team were over here playing in our league, they would destroy us because they play the game the right way and they're talented. It's it's interesting watching. You know, I felt like probably early two thousands, the the NBA game kind of kind of flattened a bit. You know, it was kind of stagnating, and the, and I agree with you that influx of of European ideals and European talent, not just the talent of the European, but the ideals. You know, the way the Spurs started moving the ball, um, you know, it really started becoming more of an international game. Maybe out of necessity, but maybe a lot of guys like yourself getting a chance to peek at what they were doing overseas. And I obviously think the, you know, the USA basketball component with them having to go over and start scouting those kind of opponents all the time and just having more of an emphasis and more of a, you know, more of a practice built around, you know, international play, I think has obviously been able to help. Um, well, you know, when you're watching those guys internationally, who's an international guy that you saw that you knew right away was going to have a lot of success? Ooh, you know, I thought from, um, from the very beginning, 
I really felt that Ennis Cantor was going to be an NBA player when I saw him. And we saw him at the camp. Um, you know, he wasn't fast. You know, he wasn't in the best shape. But we, I remember at the, at the camp we ran, we, we, had, we played like 18-minute games, 20-minute games. The whole game was 20 minutes. And I remember uh, some of the guys were evaluating, and we were naming a couple other kids in the camp that everyone thought was really good. And I was like, so what about the big kid from Turkey? You guys don't like him? And some guys like, what do you mean? I said, did you see his hands? And I said, do you know how many rebounds he had in that 20-minute um, game with other highly talented? He had 18 rebounds. And as you know, Coach, that's one stat that translates no matter what level you are. Yeah. If you rebound in elementary school, you're going to rebound in middle school. If you rebound in middle school, you're going to rebound in high school. If you rebound in high school, you rebound in NBA. And those guys who rebound, he just had a nose for the ball. But his hands and his feet were so good. So I kind of knew right away if he got uh, into this country and people got to see him as he got in better shape, that he was going to be a monster. Um, the same thing with uh, – I remember seeing uh, Demontis um, – um, play for the Rockets um, from from uh, uh, DeMontis. Well, I can't think of his name, but he was really good. You know, and he was young, but he's playing all, on all the pro teams, right? Mm -hmm. Getting much burned, but it was good. Serge Ibaka, same way. He was down mm -hmm. in my Wasn't playing. You go to their practice, and you knew that that's, that's what they look like. So I can go on and on. The list goes on and on. There have been a bunch. Yeah, the international game has been – I mean, it's been it's been great. It's been a great pump for the NBA. Well, the beauty uh, of it for me is, is when I watch it, when you when you go over there and, and I would watch these young kids, but I would go to the pro games, is that the superstars in Europe weren't necessarily averaging 28 and 30 points a game. You know, mm -hmm. the ball moved, the ball scores in their leagues. And then as you go along, they make sure the ball gets to that guy, mm -hmm. but it doesn't necessarily start, come down, and we're just going to pound at that guy every time. Um, the ball moves, the player moves, the ball scores. And that's something I try to instill with our guys. The ball's going to score. And some of our best teams here, you know, the, the leading scorer may be 15 points, next guy 14 points, next guy, but we'll have five of those guys bunched in that area because the ball scores. Yeah, it's it's funny. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, you know, we're, I was on this show the other day talking about Draymond Green. And the way that, you know, it's funny. It's once I talk about, well, I say how skilled he is. I said, this guy's the most, one of the most skilled players in the NBA. And they were like, no, he's not skilled. I said, no, you're talking about shooting. You're, right. you're, you're labeling shooting with skill. Right. You know, what you're talking about is a guy who can move the ball from inline to inline with speed and precision, who can make any kind of pass you need to make and has the IQ to, to keep everybody involved. You know, that's really skilled. Well, think, think about his impact on the game. I'd say it all the time. If you can get a front court player, like you said, to play inline to inline, now you've totally changed the defense's transition defense. Yep. You know, we're so used to a guards getting it, guards getting it, you get back in transition. I mean, I, I said when, when, when Draymond entered the NBA and played Golden, for Golden State and started, he's cheating the game. Like, <laughs> yeah. he's the decode. You know, um, how many teams have had to change their transition defense because of Draymond Green? Right. And just his ability to get those other guys easy opportunities and, you know, just like what he does defensively. I did a project uh, about three weeks ago just about what, is, what he does on defense. You know, I mean, everyone's always trying to pick on Steph. You know, now Steph's a high steals guy. Everyone talks about how bad a defender is. He has like two steals a game. Like <laughs> pretty, pretty good. Um, you know, the poor defenders, they're always trying to attack him. But what he's able to do on that back line to protect all those guys 
is really, really special too. And, you mm-hmm. know, so when you talk about European players, obviously Draymond's from, from Michigan, but you know, he gives, he gives the words a little bit of that European feel with the way that he can move the ball and create and how he can play IQ wise, how he can play unselfishly. Absolutely. Um, so he does. He has him, him and PJ Tucker, their talk effect on the game oh, yeah. and is at a different level, you know, and, and people can't see that when you're watching TV, you know, when you're watching the game, you're really watching the game, his talking effect. I think people see, they see him talking trash, but they don't see the talking effect that he has. He's the point guard on defense. He's organizing the defense every time down there. Let's, let's talk a little bit about Nova. I mean, we got some Jay Wright on there. Um, obviously just retired this past year after a tremendous career. Um, you know, how, how was Villanova? How was Jay Wright? You know, what, what did you kind of learn there, experience there? You know, this, some places are just great because you know why. They, they have the secret sauce to it. And I just tapped into it. It's all about team there. Um, Coach Wright was all about team. But the, my favorite thing, and hopefully it was and still is for all the players who played for him, is that it was like going to basketball camp every day as a coach. You were going to play basketball the way basketball was intended to play. Um, he still didn't try to – he didn't try – early on, when I think when players go to coaches who are really good with the fundamentals, they think that the, play, the coach may be holding them back. You know, I can't do my thing. I can't do my thing. No, what Coach Wright was really good about is you're going to learn to play basketball the right way, the right way. And then in the game, if it so happens, you got to do the thing that you do to do your thing, but you're trying to win for the team. He understood that. But during the course of learning the game of basketball, the course of practice, he was going to make sure the coaches and the players understood that we're going to play the right way. Um, and he was the absolute best at it. And what he was really good at is um, he built up a lot of equity with the players, a lot like Lorenzo, too. He always had his door was always open for any reason for a player to come in and talk or just to come in and shoot the breeze on their way through. Um, and he, he really built um, built on back of, you know, Coach Massimino and coaches before him. Villanova's a family program. And one of the things, and that's how it was at University of Washington, you know, a new player coming in, it'd be nothing for them to see a former player sitting in coach's office, a different one, a couple times a week, sitting in his office, catching up with them because it was a family thing and everyone wants to, everyone wants to see everyone do well there. And from a strategic standpoint, um, he's just one of the best I've ever been around, period. Yeah. What's it like being onboarded into that Villanova program? What's really interesting is the onboarding, if you if you have humility about yourself, the onboarding is when you walk into that practice facility and you take a look around. Oh, now I see. You know, yeah. it's, it's just the way it's hard to explain. It's kind of a nebulous thing with Villanova. Is that it's like in the air. You know, mm-hmm. every time you breathe, there it is, there it is, there it is. <laughs> um, and, and then he, he's not going to have it any other way. You're either with it or you can't be there. You know, you're with it. And that's from player, players to coaches to everyone around the program that it's the schools. He did an inordinately great job of making sure that everyone knows this is Villanova's program. Jay Wright's the steward of the program, but this is Villanova's program. Oh, wow. It's so we go. I'm head coach of the mountain. I think it's my, I can't remember which year it was, but we go and play Villanova when Archie and those guys and Josh Hart, those guys are like freshman sophomores. So this yeah. is right before this is a year before the national championship. Yeah. Um, there's two parts of this story. So the first part is they're beating, they're beating us 
like crazy. You know, I think we're down 30 at the half or something. They're just making every shot. They're playing great. Um, you know, we're playing on campus. Place is going nuts. Um, my guys end up being the NCAA tournament too. So they were good players, but they were younger. Right. And so we're down, we're in the second half. We're down, I think 27 or something. And there's a loose ball on the sideline and Archie the almost, I mean, he dives over there and almost runs through the, the scoreboard on this ball at, th- you know, up 37, you know, up 37, three minutes left, you know, he could have easily let that ball go out. And he's, I mean, he's diving on that thing. And, and I remember in that moment when I jumped over him thinking that's <laughs> like, I, because at the time they weren't ranked. Right. And, you know, and early in the year, you know, we, we like the Mount, we played watch, we played everybody. Right. You know, I'm like, this team is much better than the 15th rated team we just played. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm just like, yeah, much better than them. Um, but you got, I got a glimpse that day of why, you know, when they won the national title, I wasn't surprised because they were playing that way, the right way, be- well before they were winning two championships in three years or four years, whatever it was, you know, again, up, tw- up 27 you know, arch diving on the floor. And then, you know, you know how it is there. Arch dives on the floor. And then I jump over him, but then there's four other guys coming to pick him up off the floor almost before arch, you know, can even hit the scores table. That's just different. There's the culture. And, you know, they say attitude It's attitude. Right. And it's funny you say that because the one thing about coach, Wright that kind of got me as an assistant coach when he always talk about playing the right way. So you said they were up 30, there were times we beat people that badly who has the Villanova and he was not happy because we didn't play the right way. And then there were other games where we got beat by teams early in the season. I didn't think we should get beat by pretty bad. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh man, coach is going to be living it. And he walked in and he was great with the guys. He said, sometimes it's going to be like that, you know, but you played the right way. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing I've, I've learned from him is that, Hold your kids to the accountables. Hold your kids to play the way you want to play. That doesn't mean you're going to win every game. You want to win every game. But if you just keep instilling that this is how we play, this is how we play, whether we're up by one or up by 40, it it becomes who you are. It becomes who you are. And then when you're done playing basketball, you're going to kill people to work alongside you on Wall Street because you're going to be able to persist and because you're going to do the same thing the right way hard, aggressive, and more often than the person beside you every day. Yeah, it's it's it, it was amazing to watch in person. I think this is before they'd even won one national title. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it was amazing to watch in person because you could really feel it. And I, we had played Villanova when I was at Bucknell before, and they were good, but you could tell this was different, right? Different. And, then, yeah. and so then they beat us by, you know, 27, 30, whatever it is. And then we're getting on the team bus and, and uh, my manager comes up because Jay Wright's Jay Wright's at the bus coach. And, and Jay Wright brought us out pretzels to the bus. <laughs> yeah. Had to beat us by, by 27 or 30, whatever it was. That sounds like Nebraska football. They're the nicest people in the world. And you play them, they beat you up and then they're really nice on their way out. They'll get you subs, whatever you need. <laughs> <laughs> so I just always remember that with Jay. And then, um, and, and I just, you know, I always remember that with him. It's like, man, he came out. I was like, man, you know, you guys are pretty talented, you know, just, and he talked to me for a little bit, which, you know, a lot of, not a lot of guys do, you know, not a lot of guys are people, you know, um, that, you know, and, and so it was just kind of neat that he was able to do that. And, and we saw them, you know, two years later in the NCAA tournament in between national championships. And our team was a little more ready that day than mm-hmm. we were on that day. But, 
they still got us. Um, so then you get a chance to go back to, to Washington. Um, mm-hmm. And I want to talk to you about Markel Fultz, if you don't mind, because, uh, no. you know, Markel exploded onto the scene. And and you got that one spot on. I remember sitting in the, and I was in my office one day. We watched spring. We were doing spring recruiting, and we're looking at Markel Fultz and uh, another really good player who went to Rhode Island. We we're kind of have on the board. They're playing on the same team together, and and I'm on the looking on the board. I'm going, you know, my staff saying we should alpha Markel. Like you know, he doesn't have anything yet. And I'm saying, guys, man, there's just no one in our league built like this. Mm-hmm. You know, he had big, strong legs, long arms, and but he just—I think he was on—he was on JV J- or varsity, a JV or freshman team as a freshman, and yep. was just kind of emerging. And my staff's like banging on the door. You got—we should offer him. You know, he didn't have anything. And I said, guys, I just don't think we're gonna get him. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so I just don't think. I don't care if he doesn't have anything this day. You know, so I think we offered the other kid who ended up going to Rhode Island, who's gonna be in the Hall of Fame. Rhode Island, he's a great player as well. Right. Um, but and then like probably a week later, two weeks later, you're really the first high majors to jump on him. Mm-hmm. And what did you see in Markel that you just absolutely loved? And why were you afraid not to wait for everybody else? Well, my thing is, you know, I'd seen him before. Not him, but I've seen that I've seen that story before, right? Mm-hmm. I've had, you know, he didn't ultimately make the NBA, but I had a player here. Um, but he had a great college career at Pitt, played pro forever. He was in Boston camp for a while named Gilbert Brown. Okay. And I remember um, I had Josh Boone and Cheyenne Moore, a whole bunch of big-time players. And he was in the eighth grade, but his mom – I was at another prep school before here. His mom wanted him to be in the same high school as his senior brother for a year. And so he was young, so he's upper grade. And he actually didn't play basketball. I was – we were on campus one day at the other school, and we're walking to the gym. And I look at the outside court, and I see this little guy out there. But he had, I mean, he looked like, this is not PC. He kind of looked like a orangutan along his arms yeah. and hair. And this is Gilbert, right? Gilbert Brown. Yep. And uh, so I walked over to the outside court and said, hey, man, we're going to the gym. If you want to play pickup, come and play with the guys. And he came and played. He was terrible, <laughs> um, low, but he had all those metrics that I like. Super mm-hmm. long arms, gigantic hands, wide shoulders, narrow waist. Like he just looked the part to me. And so I, I put him on our team. And, you know, Josh Boone and Cheyenne, they named him Grandma Brown. He was so slow. <laughs> and he probably hated me for it at the time. But after practice every day that year, remember the old jumping heavy ropes? Mm-hmm. Um, I said, I said, after practice, no matter how I practice, he had jumped the heavy rope for 45 minutes um, every day. And, you can start seeing it, and you're like, okay, his calves start looking different. His legs start looking different. And so then I get the job here, and I bring him with me. So he's the only player I've ever coached in five years. So he came back here, reclassed into his right grade. and But the thing was, he was playing like Markel at DeMatha. He was playing behind his first year here. We had Darrell Wright, who went straight from high school to the NBA. Mm-hmm. We had Cheyenne Moore, who went and played at Clemson. We had, I mean, I can go on and on and on, Jack McClinton, Hall of Fame in Miami. Yep. And he was playing behind us, but he was knocking heads with him every day. And eventually it all just clicked and boom, there it was. And by the time he graduated, he was essentially, I mean, he, went to, he was a Nike All-American camp. He's basically an All-American who wasn't All-American. Um, but so when I saw Markel, um, and this is where I talk to young coaches about, when you're on the road, don't just show up at game time when you're recruiting. Mm-hmm. Show up, don't just show up when the varsity practices. Shows up a little bit earlier. Do your work. Watch other people in the gym. Some of the best players I've ever recruited were guys I didn't go to recruit. And Markel was one of them. 
I was going to DeMatha look at other players. And I'm watching, and he's 5'9". Mm-hmm. But like you said, um, and we and we called him this all the way through until he got to watch. I called him Bambi. You know, he that, that body was like that. But I had this thing about – I had this real thing with coaches that recruit off a scouting report or recruit off the Internet about what they read mm-hmm. about people and what they hear about people. You'd be surprised how many people are affected. Watching a game, they love a kid. And two higher-level coaches or more respected coaches – don't like that kid. All of a sudden, that person doesn't like that kid. Um, I recruit my eyes. And my eyes were telling me that if this kid grows at all, he's an NBA player. I don't know what level, but he's an NBA player. And I said that around the guys, and a bunch of coaches laughed. Mm-hmm. And I'm watching them. I'm saying, man, don't watch the result of what he's doing. Watch how this kid is thinking the game. Right. Just watch him. Just watch him. Like He would get rebounds, Jamie, in a crowd. By the time he land, he would turn and throw a full court bounce pass. Boom, boom. Someone's get a layup. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's like next level. I'm going to get a rebound, but I'm, I see where everyone is. Yep. You know what I mean? And I know the right play. And so he did that constantly. And then about February that same year, one of the guys was at the gym and said, "Chill. Remember that kid? Everybody was laughing, laughing at you." About- <laughs> I was like, "Yeah." He said, "You need to get Lorenzo back to, back out to the math." I was like, "Why?" He said, "He's six four now." So he mm-hmm. went from five nine to six four, and that was all she wrote. Once yeah. he got the size and then during the recruiting process of talking to him and really, I spent a lot of time getting here with guys. How, what are you thinking? And then the other piece is, um, this is for the young coaches, be a truth teller whether you think that player is going to like it or not. The best players, they might fight you at first, but they want to be coached. Yeah, They want to know the right. And Mark actually said it to me. There was so many times at the games, I would go to him. He, he hadn't said he's going to commit to Washington yet. I was like, if you play defense like that, you can't play at Washington. Mm-hmm. If you do this, you can't play at Washington. We don't want you at Washington. And he would take it to heart and go back and, and be better at those things. He would say, Coach, man, it's amazing because all these other high-level people recruiting me, they tell me I had the best game ever. And, you, yeah. and you're on my neck. You know what I mean? Um, but that, he appreciated that, and he took the things back. And I didn't make him what he is. He made himself what he is because he took coaching. And he wanted to get better. But he, and, and, and his vision to me, I mean, I'm sorry he got hurt, you know, but his vision to me, he's like a unicorn. The things yeah. he can see out there, it's a different level. Yeah, it's it, it's. I remember when watching him, and that's kind of what I was communicating to our staff. I'm like, guys, I don't, I don't know if yeah. – <laughs> I mean, I didn't think he'd be the number one player in the country. You know, I didn't know it would jump there, but I wasn't surprised that he was an NBA player after one year. You know, like he would jump – he would jump from really far out. And so before he was 6'4", he would jump from far out and he would just shoot layups. And yeah. I think, wow, like he's jumping from a step past the, I mean, a step beyond, the, you know, in front of the free throw line in the lane. But, you know, most guys are Euro stepping around or he's just like, I'm getting to a spot and getting off because IQ wise, he knew you couldn't get to the ball if I got off the floor quick. Correct. Where most guys are thinking like, I need to make another move. And, I mean, you know this, and he didn't get a lot of charges. Very. So it was like his body control and his ability to just, like you said, process that in live action going full speed was just so unique that I felt, I said, guys, I don't think he's playing in NEC. <laughs> like, you know, it's just, that's it's different. It was, to me, it was like a, people say, well, who was he? He was like a cross between Sleepy Floyd and Steve Francis when I watched mm. him. You know, Sleepy Floyd had that smooth body control saw everything, unbelievable score. And Steve Francis at the same time, boom, take off, take off. Yeah. 
So he was like to me like he was a combination of those two. Yeah, and though and that kind of IQ and athleticism, obviously it's rare, but it's like a game changing IQ and athleticism because, like you said, it could be a dunk, an outlet pass, outlet pass, and now you've gone on a six zero run in, in forty seven seconds, and that you know that that person can dominate the game in so many different ways. You know, watching him, you know, at Washington, but also through the years at Dematha, you know, I mean, he was the number one overall pick for a reason and, and really well-deserved. I mean, he was the best player in that, in that draft, I felt like, too. I think the other thing I just want to talk a little bit about is just about, like, family, you know, and just growing in this business. You know, I know I know, I was, like, young, hungry, moving around everywhere. You've obviously had some moves. You know, how do you balance that out with family? And then how do you, you know, how do you, you know, how do you handle that part with them as you guys move around? Um, I'd love you know, a little bit here, Blue, about that. You know, um, the, the word you used in there in the question is, I think, where people get um, confused in this business. There's no, there's not a real balance. There's no, it's not a 50-50. Yeah. It is being able to manage the the busyness of the job, the busyness of the pursuit of being a champion. Um, so to me, it's more how do you manage it? What what little things are you putting in place? You know, um, as you know, I post a lot about my daughter and I and being and being a girl dad. But some things I learned along the way is, you know, if I couldn't if I couldn't get away for an extended period of time for vacation, we lived in Washington, her and I would do staycations. We would go all around the state of Washington and stay places and go up into Canada and do things together uh, that way. Um, make sure that, you know, when you work in the really good programs, um, the coaches want the kids around. The head coach wants the kids around, the family yeah. around the program. So you find ways to do that. And then um, you have to do check-ins. I mean, I'm focusing on uh, kids here to all the coaches because, you know, the the, the, the marriage part is something different. But when you have kids in this business, it's really important that uh, we get moving. We think they're all right all the time. And they go say, oh, yeah, I'm fine, fine. But just like a player, you got to watch them and see during each move you know, what, what is, Hey, what's the possible um, pitfall for them where you're going or don't take a job because that's not a, not the school where you're going, but the place where you're going may not be great for your kid. Um, so it's all those things, but it's, it's learning that balance between managing where you are and managing everything and not getting so um, myopic in your view that you forget that there's a 360 degree view that there's other people on the journey with you. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think the next progression for us as coaches is is really having some deeper family talks because I feel like so many of us are sort of going through the same things, but we're not really communicating that and not really working through that. And so we're, you know, I think, and you know, so we're running into the same kind of issues with our families. And I think I always think that's a great question to ask guys. They've kind of progressed through it and. You know, I think one of the things I respect more now are those, you know, guys like yourself that can be good girl dads, you know, guys that can be really, really good parents in this and really trying to evaluate, like, how can I do this better but not impact my family in a negative way, um, which I think yep. is challenging. And what I've, what I've learned with my kids, I'm still not – whatever people preach to you, they need to work on too. Just remember that, people. Yep. I'm just not saying I, I got this, you know, but what I've learned over time to get better at is that – when you are with your kids, be present. It's, you know what I mean? Put your phone down. You know, unless it's a three alarm fire, put your phone down. Have certain periods where they know that they are it. They're it in totality for you, but they have to have that comfort of knowing 
that they're most important. So, you know, I, I made sure for this entire year, I took my daughter to school every single day if I was in town. And so during those car rides, um, my phone would ring and she was like, you gonna pick it up? Nope. And every time I caught this, cause now I'm more in tune as she's older. She said, thank you. That made me feel important. Yeah. You know, and what that tells you is that there's other times that they don't feel important. You know, if, if you're paying attention, so you have to make sure that you, you know, you're not just there, but you're present. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Coach, I appreciate your time today. Um, sharing that knowledge for us. Um, really appreciate you being the, the first guest on last call powered by speakeasy. Um, just been an amazing conversation. And, um, I've always been thankful for you. You know, you've always been a guy in this business that's been mindful of bringing guys along, giving them great energy, setting a great example. So I've always, always been appreciative of you. And, you know, I'm glad that our, our friendship has been able to grow over the last couple of years and looking forward to continue to be able to do that. But just for all the coaches out there, we just appreciate, you know, how you live your life, how you put yourself out there for others. And, and we're just thankful to, to have guys like you in our business. So I uh, appreciate you coming on with us and, uh, you know, good luck to you this year. I know you guys will be doing great. Thank you so much, Jamie. And just for everyone out there, remember, old dogs will always want young dogs, but there were young dogs who were taught by the old dogs. So make sure if you want to grow in the business, you take little pieces from myself, from Jamie and guys who've been through it, who are going to be open and transparent and, and want you to do better. Take those pieces and work with it. I love it. And that's it for us here on, on Last Call. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Look forward to uh, to having a new guest on next week.